So it started, to, as you say, it started to open this whole new world for me because before then uh, it was all based on results and better making better players and the competitive world. So it opened a different uh, view for me as a coach and trying to improve lives instead of just results, yeah. Hello and welcome to the Tennis Pal Chronicles, the podcast to feed your passion for all things tennis. I'm your host, Philip Kim, also known as the Director of Tennis for the City of Azusa in sunny Southern California. I'm excited to launch our first podcast and hope you'll enjoy what's ahead. In this episode, you'll hear part one of an interview with professional Brazilian tennis player who goes from playing juniors and futures to D1 college and eventually running a country club tennis program in the U.S. I think it's a fascinating journey filled with a lot of insight into how international tennis works, and I hope you enjoy it. After the interview, we begin our fan favorites news section where fans from all over the world share about their favorite player. And finally, we have a giveaway for you at the end of the program, so stay tuned till the end for your chance to win. This episode is sponsored by the Tennis Pal app. Tennis Pal is a tennis community where members can find and connect with other like-minded tennis pals using the app. Use the Tennis Pal app to book games, play, teach, or learn tennis. You can also read or exchange related news, information, and original content. Play and learn tennis anytime, anywhere. Tennis Pal is available on both iPhone and Android platforms. Our special guest today is elite tennis coach Paulo Hexel. A native of Brazil, Paulo played competitive junior tennis in South America, reaching high rankings and earning a Division I college scholarship to play for University of Tennessee at Martin. Paulo brings clients, his knowledge as a touring pro and Division I player, as well as 14-plus years of experience as a tennis director of resorts and athletic clubs. Please welcome Coach Paulo Hexel. So, Paulo, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Happy to talk about a little bit about my tennis background. Uh, and thank you so much for putting together this tennis podcast. Yes, and also with me, my new co-host, Valerie Garcia, and I'm so glad that she's here, and uh, welcome her to the show as well. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the new tennis podcast. Paolo, how did your passion develop? What happened in your life that steered you towards tennis? Yes, um, I grew up playing tennis in Brazil, uh, but before I started to play tennis, um, I used to go to our local club uh, at my hometown in Brazil, and uh, I used to do various sports there, swimming, soccer, volleyball, basketball. Um, and my dad being a swimmer, an athlete there, uh, we were always hanging out at the club. And I always thought that the tennis courts were so inviting to a child. You know, I'll, 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 I remember being little, six, seven, eight years old, and I always used to ask my dad, Oh, can I just try that sport? You know, tennis, the, those courts look so cool. You know, it's so cool. The, the yellow fuzzy balls and the cool clothes, especially in the early 90s, you know, very flashy clothes. Um, so uh, my dad just said, okay, let's try it out with some, a few private lessons at the club, at the local club, uh, when I was about 10 years old, and uh, 9, 10 years old. And uh, that's how the passion pretty much started. And was that on clay courts in Brazil, or what, what is tennis like in Brazil in the 90s? Can you describe that a little bit? Definitely, yes. Uh, red clay courts, yes. That's how I grew up in Brazil. Uh, it was a lot of fun, um, especially developing a child's game uh, on a red clay surface. 
is um, is paramount for the development of uh, tennis 101 strokes, which means uh, learning how to hit you know topspin, slice, and on muscle the shot in order to win points. So you really learn how to open up the court and find the open space, the gap where you can hit a winner. So that was great. Uh, starting playing tennis on right clay in Brazil, and now back in the 90s in Brazil, it was. Uh, it was big, especially there were a lot of junior tennis tournaments, uh, especially in the southern part of Brazil, uh, back in the early 90s. And that's how probably it is our biggest tennis player in Brazil, Guga Quirten, uh, developed. He, he is probably about two years older than I am, uh, but he came from that uh, big national Brazilian circuit back then in the early 90s. Uh, that developed his game to become number one player in the world. Wow, so that's you actually came up at around the same time. Did he uh, develop as a player in the same area or you were you in a different area? Yes, uh, we're kind of close to each other. We were, in, like he's from southern Brazil. Um, our hometowns are probably about 300 miles apart. So he used to play the same southern Brazilian tournaments. And also we live somewhat close to Argentina in Uruguay, so we would be exposed to all those players that would come from Argentina in Uruguay and come and play at our tournaments and vice versa. We'll go to Argentina and Uruguay and we'll learn so much from them because tennis in Argentina has always been pretty big. Uh, it's a big, big tennis school, uh, so to speak. So um, growing up playing tennis in southern Brazil was very good. Uh, especially because Brazil is so big, so people from play, tennis players from northern Brazil, they can experience, they gotta travel really far to go all the way to southern Brazil and play those, the bigger Brazilian tournaments that happen in the southern part of Brazil. Was there a lot of competition, a lot of kids? Um, is it economically challenging for like lower economic kids? Um, you know, how did people find tennis in Brazil in the 90s? That is true. Um, uh, that is one of our uh, biggest challenges in Brazil is to uh, introduce tennis to to a lower class kids. And uh, there were back then a few projects uh, that local coaches and uh, some local tennis academies they were doing. They did. Um, they would basically go to the mall and build a, a tiny tennis court and do some free tennis uh, inside the mall, in the mall you know, area or the mall parking lot to try to introduce, make it more popular. Um, they would try to get out to, to some uh, public schools and try to introduce as part of PE. So very uh, small uh, grassroots programs that we had there, but they were so... Uh, there were so little, you know, there was just only a few available that would reach out to so, you know, not to too many kids. And there, it's not only that introduced the, the sport to, to a little kid, but also to follow up, you know, keep giving the opportunity for that kid to keep playing tennis. So that's the biggest challenge, not only introduced to the, for the, the kid, but also to uh, make sure that, uh, that that kid has the equipment has access to a tennis court, um, which is uh, very difficult in Brazil. We do not have really public tennis courts, which is something that here in the US, fortunately, we do have a lot of access to, especially in 
California, Southern California. Yeah, we are so lucky to have uh, public access. It's amazing. Anywhere I've been outside of the United States, uh, they haven't had it, and it's all kind of private course, and people are struggling to find you know places to play, or you just have to have a lot of money. Getting back to the kids, when we're talking about kids in Brazil, I'm sure the parents have to be very involved in that as well. So what's the attitude of parents and uh, just the general population about tennis players in Brazil, and how does it rank in other sports as well? That's true. Uh, the parents, they get very, very involved, like in, of course, any sports and very similar to the United States over here. They get very involved because they're not only uh, investing their time, but of course, it's a big financial commitment. It's a big family commitment. Uh, our sport, uh, when you get to a certain level, a com competitive level, uh, as you know, you guys know, we, the, the kid has to spend a lot of hours on the tennis court. When he gets on the weekends, the, you know, the family got to travel with the kid to, to different tennis tournaments. And especially if there aren't too many tennis tournaments in your area, which was what happened to me back in Brazil, in southern Brazil. Uh, we had to just, uh, sometimes my parents just had to say, hey, I'm sorry we can't go this weekend, uh, but, you know, just catch a bus and travel five, six, seven hours. Uh, I was 12, 13 years old. Wow. I, we had the hotel reserved. I knew that I had to go to the hotel, check in next day, take a bus or a taxi to the club and, you know, pretty much warm up by myself and, and play the matches by myself. So a lot of the tournaments, they had to be done that way. Uh, so even though the parents, they were very uh, involved, a lot of times they just didn't have the opportunity to be there because of how far the tournaments were from me, from from the your hometown, and uh, you just had to travel a lot. Other, in the other hand, here in the United States, you do have a little bit compared to Brazil. It's more organized with the local USTA um, chapters. Chapters. Right. There are more opportunities of uh, local tournaments for a kid to play without having to travel as much and, and go from there. So was your story kind of um, unusual or did you see a lot of kids getting on the bus and going? A lot. I was not the only one and that's why probably I did it because I saw all my other friends doing it, all my other, uh, you know, the other players, the players that I used to have to play against, uh, doing the same thing. Um, one time I had to take a pretty much a 24-hour bus ride all the way to Paraguay, to Asuncion, Paraguay, to play a 14 and under tournament. Uh, and I went with three friends of mine. And so I would say 90% of us were traveling by bus very long distances and 10% were traveling, you know, flying to the tournament. So yes, I, I was not the only one. And when you guys see players from Brazil, um, Chile, Argentina, you know, different player, places from South America, they work very hard to get to this point, that's for sure. I'm kind of interested, what kind of racket did you start playing with when you were a child? What kind of brands were available? Is it the same as it is now, or was it a lot different? Is there a Brazilian tennis racket as well? Uh, there was a, a, a Brazilian tennis brand, uh, it was called Mercury, and we used to play with that racket. Um, it was it was Kevlar and graphite Ouch. And back then. Yes, of course. Uh, pretty heavy, stiff, yeah, thin, and um, so it was it was interesting playing back in the early '90s in Brazil on red clay, 
old tennis balls and with those heavy rackets and the strings also back then I get you know the material we it wasn't what we have nowadays that's for sure so it was synthetic gut you know we used to play with uh, so my generation it was not the wooden racket of course or the metal racket but we already had you know the 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 graphite with Kevlar which back then was just you know the best but I started playing a lot with the Prince graphite uh, the one that uh, I guess Michael Chang used to play with I remember pretty well and then I changed to a Puma Boris Becker it was a blue and red racket that you could put a little bit of weight on the on the handle inside the handle of the racket to to balance it out a little bit more so that was interesting and i guess uh, also another racket that we used to play a lot with was the done uh that andre agassi used to play in the early 90s uh, very flashy and highlight yellow and all of that so that was pretty cool too when i think about those early rackets i think about how heavy they are i mean i know the wood rackets were very heavy but uh, especially as young children playing with very heavy rackets, uh, now we actually accommodate them. We have different size rackets, different weight rackets. But back then, I'm just assuming that everyone kind of played with an adult racket. Is that right? That's correct. Yes, we used to play with the adult racket, regular tennis balls, um, regular size courts. So the unsuccess rate was pretty high. Uh, so it was very tough for a kid to start playing tennis and get excited about it and be able to rally back and forth uh, back then. Uh, but we got through it and then, you know, the passion kind of, I think, that took over and you just keep playing tennis. But yes, compared to nowadays, I think that um, it is a kid can feel a lot more successful uh, with a smaller uh, rackets, a little smaller tennis court with you know, pressureless balls or balls that bounce uh, a little lower for them. So they have a little more success so we can keep a, a few more kids hopefully playing our sport, which is great. Well, let's get back to your story. So you're, you're, you're making your way through the juniors right now. What was the big change after juniors? How did you do and, and where did you go? I was fortunate enough that uh, my hometown, we had one of the top tennis academies there. So, and it was basically five minutes from my home. I, um, I had the opportunity to train at that tennis academy and we had a lot of professional, back then, professional tennis players from Brazil and also, as I mentioned before, Uruguay, Argentina, they used to go over there and live there uh, and train at this tennis academy. So I grew up playing there at this tennis academy. Uh, so Do you want to give them some love? What's the name of the academy? The name of the academy was called Valau academy and uh, our head coach there was Ivan Clay he he got to top 80 in the world back in the 80s and played Davis Cup for Brazil so he's done a lot with our with the uh, Brazilian players and as of now he still has a, a tennis academy in southern Brazil not at the same place but he's still creating great tennis players but uh, anyways, yeah, so I had the chance to to grow up at this tennis academy and seeing all this you know, professional players coming from different parts of South America to train there. I wouldn't, of course, practice with them as I was so little, I was 12, 13 years old, but I had the opportunity to see how they train. And I, I could understand right away that you could, uh, in order to get to that level, to somewhat of a professional level, I had to put a lot of time into it. And that's what I wanted to do. So I just kept playing at this, uh, training at this tennis academy from, 12 years of age to 18 years of age. I 
travel all over South America playing international ITF tournaments. At the age of 14, I started playing my first professional tournament, which was back then called the Futures, uh, the satellite uh, circuit. So I started to get exposed to that, a little bit of the, the professional world, but it's a very entry-level professional uh, circuit back then. Um, so that opened my eyes as well to how tough the professional tennis circuit can be uh, and how lonely it can be traveling around, but pretty much by yourself. Sometimes you'd be able to get together with two or three other players and have a coach to come with you. Most of the times you just travel by yourself, just like all the other players that were doing playing at that circuit. And during that time, were you playing mostly South American players or were, was there an international mix where people coming down and challenging and playing? Yeah, there was an international mix. Uh, I remember playing, from, uh, playing against kids from, uh, from France, from England, uh, from South Africa, Australia. So there were a lot of uh, kids, even the United States, uh, they used to come down to try to look for some, their first points in the world ranking to just get started. And especially because uh, back then it was a smart move because they wanted to get out of Europe. Europe was a, a very tough uh, competition as well as North America. So they needed to get out of the US, get out of Europe, go to South America to somehow try to, to get a few of the, the first points. And a lot of those players back then were great tennis players later on, you know, a lot of guys from Argentina, like Coria, Gaudio, that later on these guys, they, uh, Nalbandian, they end up being like, you know, top five in the world and so forth. Uh, Gonzalez from Chile and Masu, so it was uh, an interesting time. Yeah, good generation. That's awesome. And so then you trans, uh, transferred into college and how did that transition happen for you? Yes, uh, so basically, um, at the age of 17, I was on a crossroads. In Brazil, unfortunately, we do not have college sports, uh, as it happens in most countries in the world, of course. I had never been in the United States at, the, at that time. Basically, the University of Tennessee coach, head coach, contacted me and pretty much found out about me through the ITF rankings. And uh, they contacted me, offered me a scholarship, and I was on the crossroads of do I go professional or do I quit playing tennis and just go to school? So that was actually a great way of uh, keep playing tennis, which was, was what I wanted. And once I found out, you know, that uh, all the infrastructure that there was in college tennis here in the U.S., especially Division One tennis, and how high the level was, I got very excited about it. And my family was pretty big in academics as well, so they were... They were pretty happy that I, I decided to come to the U.S. and, and uh, challenge myself to uh, learn the language well enough to pass all the exams and then make it on the team. So when you say crossroads, that really was a major decision for you. You actually had to leave your country and go to a new country. I mean, how do you look back on that decision now? Yes, as, as a 17-year-old back then, I had to make that decision. Uh, yes, uh, go to Tennessee. First, go to the United States, different language, different culture, of course. Uh, go to Tennessee, middle of the United States, and uh, yeah, you don't know what to expect. So I think I was young enough and brave enough to just go with the flow, I guess. And uh, of course, nowadays I look back and I... I I really thank my parents all the time for giving me the uh, 
the okay and the you know thumbs up to go ahead with it even though it was tough for them uh, to say hey go to the US and and play tennis there and study but um, it was tough it was tough in the beginning also not only culturally and with the language barrier but also with my game I had to adjust from red clay to hard courts so I played 99% of my tennis career on red clay up to that point so I had to adjust my whole game so my freshman year was based on adjusting my game to the hard court. And technically, what are you doing to adjust? Uh, t tell our listeners, what is the major differences if you have to make that change? Mm -hmm. um, starting with uh, returns of serves. For example, to return the serve on clay, you stand way far back, and on hard court, you try to actually cut your corners, cut the angles a little bit more, and step forward, step into the ball. Uh, you stand a little closer to the baseline when you're playing on hardcore. So I had to make that adjustment. Number two is how long and big your backswing is when you play on red clay. You just get used to having this huge backswing to generate all the power in the world that you can and you have all the time to do it. So on hardcore, I had to cut that backswing, yeah, you know, to adjust for the bounce. Balls are coming at you a lot quicker. So much faster. So much faster. Uh, so I had to do that. I had to pretty much relearn how to volley because on red clay we say you just go to the net to shake your opponent's hand, right? <laughs> <laughs> or to pick up the balls. Right. And so I had to pretty much relearn how to volley more effectively and what to do around the net uh, and what to do after you hit your first volley, you know? Uh, so those were the major changes that I had to make on my game. I had a good enough serve that uh, it became even more effective on hardcore because the bounce was, of course, a lot faster. So I enjoyed that, that part. In terms of serves, my backswing and also my volleys were the biggest changes. Wow, that's so interesting to think about how professionals have to go from Rafa who just now moved from red clay and winning to playing at uh, Wimbledon and now to the U.S. Uh, Open. How strange to be able to make those changes so quickly. Yes, yeah, it's a big change. And it's um, incredible to see nowadays uh, Rafa, Djokovic, Roger, they all came from the red clay school of tennis. So they had to make some major adjustments on their game in order to play on faster courts. Uh, and especially when you have two grand slams being on hard court and one on grass, you really want to make sure as a professional and a top player to make sure that you uh, make those changes and adapt to a faster game, even though they choose their yearly schedule to be a little heavier on the red clay. But in order to win those big grand slams, they had to adjust their game to, to the fast game. This is probably a great place to stop. We'll continue part two of the interview in our next episode. You can contact Coach Paolo Hexel directly via his website at hexeltennis.com. That's H-E-X-S-E-L tennis.com. And now it's time for fan favorites. We asked a few passionate friends to share news about their favorite players. First up is Fiona from Sydney, Australia with our Roger Federer update. Hi, I'm Fiona, and I'm here to bring you the Federer fan update for the Love Set Match blog. 
So we're in the tail end of August now, which means we're pretty comfortably settled into the North American hardcourt swing of the season. Before this week, the last we saw of Roger was in the Wimbledon quarterfinal, where he uh, exited um, at the hands of Kevin Anderson. It was a bit of a sudden and admittedly devastating loss for us fans to witness, especially because of the enormity of Wimbledon and because Roger was the defending champion. But I found that in the process of getting over the loss, I it was important to remind myself that Roger has given us fans a lot to be thankful for over the past 18 months and the losses remind us even more of how remarkable those moments are. So after Wimbledon, Roger withdrew from the Rogers Cup in Toronto, um, citing rest and recovery, not injury, as the reason why he had to skip the tournament. So I think it was a great decision for his scheduling and instead he spent July and August recovering and training in New York and Switzerland. Of course, 8th of August was Roger's 37th birthday. A lot of fans gave some really nice messages of support and thanks and love to Roger during that time and it was just really great to see. And then also he gave a great interview as well where he mentioned how he celebrated his 37th birthday surrounded by friends and family and they had a superhero themed birthday party where Roger was dressed as Superman and Merka was dressed as Wonder Woman and the kids were all dressed as superheroes too. So that was a really nice story to hear. Now, at the time of recording, we're in the middle of Cincinnati, which is actually one of Roger's most successful events on the tour. This week has been his first week back after one month of recovering after Wimbledon, and it's been a bit of a big week. Um, We've seen Roger play two matches in one day, his third round match and his quarterfinal match. And I think before this week, the last time he ever played and won two matches in one day was in 2014. So it's been 14 years since he'd had to do that. So he was still in his 20s back then and now he's doing it and still winning at 37, which is awesome. Crazy week impacted by the weather and everything, but Rogers made it. He's in the final. It's his 150th uh, career final and that's just insane by itself but it's also his 48th Masters 1000 final and his eighth final in Cincinnati. I think he he's been playing pretty well this week he's been serving exceptionally well but stumbling a little on his return of serve. I hope he can bring it all together because he plays Djokovic um, later today in the final. Um, It will be the 46th time that uh, Djokovic and Federer meet in their careers and and they haven't played each other since 2016 in the Australian Open semi-finals so uh, a lot has happened since then but I hope that um, it's going to be a good match and I'm, I'm pretty nervous anyway at the time of recording this so then um, I mean Rogers never lost when he's reached the Cincinnati final and he's reached it seven times before so I hope he keeps that run going. Um, anyway, no matter what the result is, I hope everyone can support him from wherever they are. And I think this week in general has geared him up pretty well for the US Open, which will be the last major of the year. Then that begins the week after next and the 
time coming up in New York is going to be exciting. It'll be nervy. It'll be all of that. But let's just give him all of our support and hope for the best because that's all we can do as fans. So thank you for listening. I hope you all enjoy the Cincinnati final and I hope you all enjoy watching the US Open. And I hope I can be back another time to give you a Federer fan update. Thanks again and bye. Hey, thanks, Fiona, for the Federer news. Let's check in with Valerie in Los Angeles about Serena Williams. Hey, guys, it's Valerie here with your fan-fave report on our SoCal hometown girl, Serena Williams, who recently pulled out of Montreal. She took to Twitter and shared that she was not only accepting some tough personal stuff, but she was just in a funk. She said she felt like she was not a good mom. After speaking with family and friends, she was assured these are very normal feelings. She shared this message to all you moms out there. Whether stay at home or working, finding that balance with kids is a true art. You are the true heroes. Thanks, everyone. Catch you next episode. Thanks, Valerie, for letting us know how Serena Williams is doing. Let's welcome Tanya from Bosnia and Herzegovina with a report on her favorite, Novak Djokovic. Novak Djokovic is heading back to the top of men's tennis. Last month, he won Wimbledon probably the most prestigious Grand Slam in tennis world and it was a proof that he has finally put behind an elbow injury that forced him to the sideline in July 2017. This month, the best tennis is back to the hard courts, which is Novak's most favorite surface. And that's a big chance for him to show the world that he really is back. It could be done by winning Cincinnati, the only ATP Masters 1000 championship to elude him. He has reached the finals five times there and lost every time, acknowledging that the pressure has played a part, but he admits that he is back on proper mental track. After winning Wimbledon, I know for sure things are different now, Djokovic said. More confidence, more optimistic. I am always going into tournaments with high expectations and ambitions, but it's quite different when you have a Grand Slam title under your belt. What could be a game changer is that his old team is back with him. His coach and tennis father Marian Vaida and fitness trainer Gebhard Grich are cheering for him from the stands again, and they are going to keep on working together at least till the end of the year. During their break, Djokovic wasn't clear of how his game should look and that's when he decided to call Vaida. Slovakian coach admitted that he refused many offers before being asked to come back with Novak. I didn't feel ready for coming back. It's tough to coach anyone after Novak, Vaida admits. I experienced and accomplished everything possible in tennis with him. But before rejoining the team, Vida influenced Djokovic's split with spiritual leader Pepe Maz, who was, for many people, the main reason for Djokovic's fall and that he was the one who advised Novak to become a vegan. Nobody can be sure about that, but Vida confirmed that Serb is eating fish again. Novak had adjusted his diet to include eating more fish as he doesn't eat the other kind of meat. Now his muscles are in perfect condition, Vida said. He's following all the right habits and doing what it takes to be a champion. Tennis World is eager to see if Djokovic will get back where he belongs, because men's tennis hasn't been the same without him. Fans are waiting for his extraordinary matches against Federer and Nadal. 
Their rivalry is something that makes people love tennis, and that's why everyone hopes for an amazing U.S. Open series. If you would like to be a fan fave reporter, please contact us. We would love to feature your favorite players' news in our show. Connect with all of our fan fave reporters via social media listed in the show notes. As promised, here's my friend Valerie to present our show's giveaway for this episode. Our giveaway for this episode is from our sponsor, the Tennis Pal app. They're offering our listeners one free month of premium Tennis Pal app access, which includes finding and messaging tennis players in your zip code for free. Download the app and use the promo code PODCAST. The app is available for the iTunes and Android platforms, so jump on that now. In addition, we want to personally reward the first person who signs up for the Tennis Pal app with a free Nike sweatband just for listening. And we'll announce the winner on the next episode. So that's our show for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. You can join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover our fantastic bonus content on our blog. In our next episode, we'll be finishing the interview with Paolo Hexel and have a lot more fan fave reports for you. In future podcasts, we'll be discussing injury prevention in tennis, so stay tuned for that. A big shout out to our sponsor, Tennis Pal. Go download their tennis app today and find people to play tennis with in your area. Visit tennispalapp.com. Thanks for listening.